This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. This is the prologue on America's Web Radio, weekly program bringing you introductions to writers and books you may not yet be familiar with. My name is Doug Dahlgren. If you'll allow me, I'll be your host for the next hour. I'm an author myself, and you can find my work on Amazon, Books A Million, and Barnes & Noble, all.com. We call this show the prologue because that's exactly what it is. And while our introductions are mainly writers, we love to bring you interesting people with a story to tell from other fields and endeavors as well. So if you or someone you know has a book or that interesting story that just absolutely needs to be told, please reach out to me through email. And you can do that one of two ways, through Doug at AmericasWebRadio.com or Doug at DougDahlgren.com. I'd love to speak with you about being a guest on a future program. Now, our guest today is an award-winning author and a teacher of writing and literature at Mount West Community and Technical College in Huntington, West Virginia. Before we bring him on, let me welcome two special groups of listeners that we're very proud to have here at America's Web Radio. Our folks serving in the armed forces of this country around the world working hard to keep us back home safe so we can lead our lives as we so often take for granted. Freedom isn't free. It's bought and paid for daily by those men and women in uniform, and we want to thank each and every one of them for what they do. I also want to mention our first responders here at home, those police, fire, and EMT personnel who rush to our aid when we need help. Thank you guys for being there as well and for what you do. Our guest today educated at Marshall University and Eastern Kentucky University. He holds bachelor's degrees in journalism and two master's degrees, one in English, the other in fine arts and creative writing. His novels include Breakdown at Clear River and Making Arrangements, and the latest, which he's here to tell us about, Fragile Brilliance. And this is your prologue. A routine patrol for Police Sergeant Ronan McCullough suddenly becomes anything but routine. Assailants of a college student turn on him, leaving the officer badly injured. His recovery is hampered by emotional as well as physical damage. McCullough's investigation exposes a deadly drug ring, making inroads into his community. But disbelief and internal office politics get in the way and threaten his investigation. The author leads us through this case and reveals a very scary and yet real drug that's involved. The research and character development make this a compelling page-turner. The book, again, is Fragile Brilliance, and the author, Elliot Parker, is with us this hour. How are you, Elliot? Hi, Doug. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. We appreciate you being here. Now, for readers who are familiar with your other novels, Fragile Brilliance is a bit of a departure. Though the breakdown at Clear River does involve a murder, Fragile Brilliance digs deeper into the inner workings of a metropolitan police department. Tell us, how did you research that activity? Well, one of the things that, that I did in wanting to sit out and write this book was to do, as you said, where, where Breakdown at Clear River uh, w was a murder mystery. This one I wanted to be a little darker, a little, a little grittier, a little more... Uh, 
into the inner workings of the police investigation. Um, and I was fortunate that uh, I have a number of friends who work in law enforcement, both uh, in the area and the community in which I live, and also in other areas as well. Um, my uh, uncle was a uh, uh, police officer in Atlanta, and uh, for a number of years, and he worked, uh, you know, on the on the major crimes, violent crimes. Um, task force group of the department there for uh, the last part of his, latter part of his career. And so uh, he had a lot of stories, and, and, and he retired a few years ago. And so I um, was able to, to talk to him a lot about some of the things that, you know, obviously he couldn't talk to me uh, about some of his cases when he was working, but that he was free now to, to, to talk to me a little bit about uh, some of the things that, that he had, had done and seen over his career. So I took some of those stories. I took some of the stories from the other people uh, I knew that work in law enforcement, uh, both local and state um, uh, and federal in the community in which I live, and kind of combined all that together uh, into the procedural uh, aspects uh, of fragile brilliance. Now, as we mentioned in the lead-up here, uh, the internal office politics that's referenced in this story plays a big role. Uh, and gets in the way at many times. Anybody who's ever worked in any type of an office situation understands how that stuff can get in the way and be a problem. But in a police investigation, it can really be a big issue. Uh, were these same connections that you had, were they able to share things of that nature with you, or how were you able to so realistically create that situation? Some of that was from those uh, encounters and discussions I had with, with those law enforcement officers, the ones that are retired and currently working. Some of them were a little bit based on uh, you know situations I'd been involved in over my working career in terms of office politics. And as you said, Doug, no matter where you work, there's office politics everywhere, no matter what, what career you choose or where you work or what city you live in. Uh, so it was a combination of both of those. Um, I, I think that, you know, Part of the central problem or the central conflict in the office politics uh, in Fragile Brilliance deals with Ronan McAuliffe and Sean Carter. Ronan McAuliffe is the sergeant uh, who's done a lot of undercover work and kind of you follow him through the uh, investigation and, 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 the, and the murders in Fragile Brilliance. But Sean Carter is sort of the, the chief of detectives for the Charleston Police Department. And the tension comes because... Uh, as Ronan points out uh, in his interactions with Sean, that Sean didn't necessarily get his job by working his way up. And um, you know, his father was a former mayor of Charleston, and uh, th th there's a sense that Sean got sort of uh, handed the job of, of uh, being chief of detectives without earning it. And that's one thing that in, in talking with a, a lot of those people I spoke with about you know police investigation and those kinds of things, they are very... Um, firm in believing that in order to get to point B, you need to put your pay your dues, so to speak, at point A. And uh, you know, a lot of the people I talked to that were detectives and, and worked in homicide and those kinds of things started out as patrolmen and beat cops, and they had to spend you know two, three, four years sometimes, you know, walking the street and having a beat before they moved up to corporal and then sergeant and then lieutenant, so on and so forth. And so uh, that's a deep regimented sort of firm. Uh, belief that law enforcement have that to, to get to that higher level, you need to sort of pay your dues. And there's a sense in the book that Sean Carter didn't necessarily do that. And so that, that creates a lot of the tension between uh, uh, Ronan and, him, and, and Sean. And also Sean seems to uh, discount Ronan's ability to, to solve you know this case and to work this case. And then Ronan doesn't help himself by kind of bending the rules a little bit and stepping outside of... Uh, it's his area and sort of uh, pushing the line, so to speak. So there's a lot of conflict there, but it really stems from the fact that uh, 
there's a sense that Sean didn't pay his dues to get that chief of detectives position like he should have. Very good. Now, we'll get into the details why in just a second, but also the medical examiner's office plays a large role in this story, and you offer great detail on that. <clears throat> now, how in the world did you get that type of, that level of research from the medical examiner's point of view? Well, my father, uh, and some of this issue comes up uh, in, in my other bookmaking arrangements, but my father was a, a funeral director, and so was my grandfather. They were both morticians. Uh, unfortunately, both of them have passed away, but they had a lot of dealings with the medical examiner's office and when it came to, uh, you know, going down and making removals and those kinds of things for families and, and in order to have funerals and burials and those kinds of things. So, you know, I knew of, you know, kind of the role that a medical examiner played in, to some degree with that. Uh, but I just simply did a little bit of research and looked at kind of what medical examiners did, and I called a couple medical examiners, and 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 some of them were very gracious in talking with me about kind of what they do. Now they couldn't get very specific, you know. When, you know, you know, I did this with patient X, or I did this with patient Y, but uh, they were very they were very beneficial. I actually got to go to the uh, uh, the West Virginia Medical Examiner's Office, which is in South Charleston. Um, which is not too far from where the uh, action of fragile brilliance takes place, and they were very gracious and 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 talking with me, and I just kind of got to walk around and just kind of see how the rooms were set up, what did it look like, what did it smell like, what did it feel like when you were in there, and I tried to get some of those impressions and some of those discussions of what they told me into the book and describing those scenes. Oh, and you did that quite well. Um, now, the reason that that's so important, uh, as we said earlier, there is detail of a very real and a very frightening drug in this story. In fact, that's the catalyst for the story. Desimorphine, which has a street name of Croc, which is K-R-O-K. Tell us, educate us a little bit about this very dangerous and, again, quite real drug. I'd be happy to. It is. It's a very dangerous drug. It, its origins come in eastern Russia. Uh, it, it has been, it's, it's a drug that's been around for a while, uh, but is now making it, its cross internationally. Uh, it's a very dangerous and addictive drug. Um, and where it gets that name Croc Doug is it comes from what it does to you. It, it is, uh, it is a chemical. It is a lot like, um, heroin or cocaine or some of the other terrible drugs that we hear about and know of. You know, it, it can be injected. It can be snorted. It can be, smoke that can be, you know, put in your body in a variety of different ways. Uh, but what it basically does is it turns your skin into like a crocodile. It turns your skin into, it looks like the, the backside of a crocodile, rough, scaly, uh, flaky. Uh, and basically what it's doing is it's destroying the tissues in your body. It destroys the tissues in your skin. So if you inject it in your hand or your arm or wherever, Suddenly, uh, over time, you know the, the tissues the tissues wither up and die, uh, and so that's what gives you that crocodilish looking skin. Um, it's very addictive. There is no cure for it. Uh, the high is very quick, uh, and once people get hooked on it, there is no cure. There's no methadone. There's no you know uh, medicine you can take. There's no withdrawal. Once you get hooked on this, uh, you're on it, and the uh, and, and it doesn't ha and, and you don't stay on it very long before something will happen to you. Either uh, you'll have organ failure, you will suffer a heart attack, a stroke. Uh, it's that powerful of a drug. And what makes it so deadly, Doug, is the fact that it's very cheap to make. Uh, and 
once you get people hooked on that or once uh, someone gets or a group or a, a dealer or a pusher or whatever you want to call them gets, gets people hooked, they can't come off of it, and they will pay anything and do anything to get uh, more supply of that drug to maintain that high. So it's a very dangerous and, and deadly drug of which there is no cure, and um, it, it just opens up so many opportunities for all kinds of different and nefarious things to happen in the book. Uh, when this drug syndicate introduces this drug to Charleston and uh, it starts spreading around the community uh, because the, the, the law enforcement folks in Charleston and, and are, have never seen a drug like this and have never seen a drug do what it's done to the citizenry. And so uh, that, that's a huge component of, of what happens, but it's a very dangerous, nasty drug. Give us the name again and also the street name. Sure. Uh, it's desomorphine, and uh, the, that, that's that, the, the clinical... Um, uh, medicinal name for it, um, and the uh, the street name is Croc, K-R-O-K. And again, the street name comes from the fact that once once the tissues at the injection point, if you inject it uh, or put it up your nose or whatever you do, um, once that takes hold, it starts to destroy the tissues and the membranes in that area. And so your skin ends up looking like crocodile skin. It dries up, it gets flaky, you get the scale marks, uh, like you would see on a crocodile at the zoo or in Florida or somewhere. So uh, it, it is a very dangerous, uh, very nasty drug. Sounds that way. Folks, we're here this morning. We're listening to Elliot Parker. He's telling us about his novel, Fragile Brilliance. Right quick, tell us the two places where folks can find out more about you and your books. Sure. Uh, my books are available on uh, Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, uh, they're also available. Uh, more information about the books and, and myself and my writing can be found at my website, ElliotParker.com. That's E-L-I-O-T-P-A-R-K-E-R.com. Uh, I should point out that, uh, that Doug, that, that at, at the time we're recording this or doing this interview, my website's undergoing some, some revamping. So you may see some areas on web pages that, that are blank or it looks like there's chunks of information missing. Uh, that's because I'm in the process of getting it redone and getting it expanded a bit. But uh, the, the core information about my book and about my writing is still there. So folks are welcome to go there. And there's also a contact link uh, that's got all okay. of my social media contacts and also my email address. So folks are welcome to, to contact me there as well. All right. Well, we're going to take a break here for a minute, and we will be back with more from Elliot Parker after these few messages. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren on Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. 
they can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. And welcome back. We're here on the prologue this morning. We've got Elliot Parker with us from Huntington, West Virginia. Elliot has written a book called Fragile Brilliance, and he was right before the break telling us about this drug, which is the focal point of the novel, the uh, the problem that's in the novel and what uh, the detective is going after, uh, desimorphine. Now, not to give away the plot or the story, but... Uh, you write about this drug that's it's being introduced to young people at the college level. Now, how insidious is that? Is this very widespread today? You know, it, it's interesting. At, at the time that I was doing the research on that, Doug, and, and looking at, at some cases, there had only been, I could only find two um, cases in which, uh, recent cases in which uh, desomorphine had been named as a cause in someone's death. You know, we, we hear, unfortunately, so many times on the news of, of people dying from drug overdoses and those kinds of things, and, and the heroin epidemic certainly is a huge cause of that, not only in, in, in the region in which I live, but all across the country. But uh, there were some cases in Illinois, and there were some cases in Utah um, that, that I looked at uh, for some examples. Um, so it, it's not as widespread yet. But it's some of the folks I talk to that work in, you know, work in drug enforcement and, and, and focus on drugs and drug crime say that it's coming. And uh, it, it may not come, you know, as desomorphine proper. I mean, you know, you may not necessarily have um, people out there selling it in, in its pure form, although that could happen. Uh, but it may get mixed with heroin. It may get mixed with cocaine. It may get mixed with, with other things, uh, which makes it that much more destructive and that much more deadly. Um, and it's really got it's really got law enforcement kind of concerned because, as we were talking about before the break, there is no cure, and the breakdown in the body is so sudden and it's so severe, um, and so it happens so quickly, um, and you can't, as the person, you know, it, it's not like, you know, we say, well, I'll, I'll take it today and then I'll be fine. I, w- I won't need to use it for a couple of days. I mean, once you're on it, you're hooked, and you will do absolutely anything. Uh, to 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 get more to keep fueling that habit, so it it is something I think that that we will we will see as time goes on. Unfortunately, uh, become more and more of a concern uh, uh, for law enforcement and much more of a concern in our communities. Now you're saying that uh, even though it might be mixed or cut uh, with something else, that doesn't diminish the effect or the desire for more. That 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 holds strong. Is that what you're telling us? That's correct. Yes, that's exactly right. Yes, many of us out here uh, just really haven't heard of this. Like I said before, your experience. You say you found of two cases where it was actually the cause of death. Do you think that that it's being kept quiet, or is is it just too new to be into the news? I, I think maybe a little bit of both. I, I think that. Um, it, it is a little, it is a little too new because, like I said, this started. So this drug sort of started in, in Eastern Russia, and uh, it, it's it's kind of making its way internationally, slowly but surely across across the world. 
Um, I think a little bit because it's not as it's not as widespread. It is new, but I also think that it, it, it you know in, in in my research and talking with folks, you know, until I think law enforcement and the medical community can come up with a response to this um, is one of the reasons we we maybe haven't heard about it because you know if if someone has a press conference, you know, a hospital or the police department has a, a conference, a, you know, press conference about this. One of the first reactions that someone in the media is going to ask, or that you know, uh, someone in the community is going to ask, is, "Well, what do we do to stop this? Or how do we get people off of it once they get on and hooked on this stuff?" And uh, right now, there's no answers for that. I mean, right now, that there's there is no there is no medicine out there to get someone off of that, and and we're just not sure exactly, you know, where this is coming from, who has access to it. So I think it's a little bit of both. I, I think you, you're seeing until it become until it becomes more focus on it until you know, there's a, a response plan in place. Um, it, it's it's being kept sort of uh, sort of under wraps. And I have a scene in the book where um, Ronan is talking to the FBI, and, and I don't want to give too much of the plot away, but that explains a little bit too about you know about why why it's being sort of kept under uh, you know under wraps. And a lot of it is because we just don't know enough about the drug yet to to formulate a, a an effective response. You want to find out where it's coming from, but you don't want to drive it too far underground uh, so that you can't find out where it's coming from. Uh, exactly. I can understand that. Uh, now, the book has been out for several months. It's fairly new. Have you had a chance to receive any feedback from police officers or around your area or around the country who have actually read the book? Uh, a few, yes. A couple of them have, and, and, the, and the feedback and the response has been very good. Um, I think... Some of those law enforcement uh, groups and folks that uh, spoke with me um, in my acknowledgement section in the book. Now, some of them didn't want to be identified. Uh, some of them, <clears throat> excuse me, work uh, still work undercover as, as as drug agents and those kinds of things, and didn't want to risk having their name out there uh, to, to blow their undercover status. And I totally understand that. Uh, but yes, the feed the feedback has been good. Surprisingly, too, Doug, I've had a number of attorneys read the book. Um, who's sort of on the you know, on the other side of this issue and the other side of, of drugs and this kind of thing, you know, on the prosecutorial side of things. And a lot of them have been very positive and said, you, you got it exactly right, you know, th- this is how it would be, or, or this is, you know, when we investigate these kinds of cases, this is how the investigation would have unfolded, and this is how the cops would have talked to each other. And I've heard cops talk to each other like this, and I've seen these kinds of things unfold. So it's been, it's been very gratifying. I, I wanted it to be a real page-turning uh great thriller kind of story, but I also wanted to get it as accurate as I could to what would really go on uh, in this type of an investigation. And folks, if it sounds like we're beating this horse to death, uh, it's important. Uh, it's something that most of us aren't really familiar with. Uh, Elliot's bringing to us knowledge that, that we all need to know and be aware of, uh, and it's insidious in the fact that this can be injected. Uh, he mentioned it also can be snorted or inhaled or what have you. But I believe uh, from what you describe in the book, most people do it injection, and they don't do it out in the open. It's not necessarily going to be where you see it because, unfortunately, it does leave those scars. You have one of your characters that they don't even have a clue uh, that that's what he was doing until uh, they, they see the lower parts of his legs on the morgue table. Uh, so, yeah, if we're beating this thing to death, uh, again, you need to be aware of it. If you hear anybody talking about uh, croc, uh, you need to perk your ears up and uh, and get into it. And uh, we'll kind of leave it at that unless you have something further to say there, Elliot. 
Oh, no, I, I think that, that that's perfectly fine, Doug. All right. Now, back to the book. I like your use of the quote, in this case from Sir Winston Churchill, to kind of set the stage for this story. Now, the quote in itself is a tribute to first responders. It just absolutely is. Tell us about the quote and how you came to choose it for your book. Winston Churchill is one of my favorite uh, political leaders of all time, and I think, uh, not to get too much into a, a World War history, a World War II history lesson, but uh, if you study the World War II or, or know anything of that time period, the, the challenges that he faced as the leader of, of Great Britain, England during World War II were unbelievable. I mean, you know, he had a, uh, you know, his country had been attacked by Adolf Hitler, had been London had been basically bombed. Uh, to smithereens, for lack of a better expression, and there was a lot of pressure put upon him by Parliament, by by the media at that time, that he wasn't doing enough and he wasn't being aggressive enough. And of course, we all know how World War II ended. That it that it was Churchill's resolve, it was Franklin Roosevelt's resolve, and uh, in some cases Joseph Stalin's resolve that ultimately uh, defeated the Germans during World War II. Uh, but Winston Churchill is a wonderful. Uh, quote magnet. He, he's got so many wonderful quotes, and a lot of them came during this World War II period, um, you know, when, when Britain was under so much, so much pressure uh, from invasion and from the, from the Nazis during World War II. So I was, I was looking, and I, I've read some books on him, and there's a number of wonderful quotes by him, but I was looking at something that would, that would tie in, as you said, to, to honoring, you know, those that go out and protect us sometimes when we don't think about it or when we don't... Um, when we don't expect it or don't think about it. And I came across that quote um, from a biography I'd read of him about seven or eight years ago. And uh, there was that quote in there. And I don't know, I can't remember exactly where he made that quote. I, I'm, I'm thinking that was during a time when he was meeting with his advisors right after uh, Germany had bombed London and, and they were mounting a response. Um, but I just thought it was a great quote. I thought it, it, it set the tone for the book. It, it uh you know, tied into someone who I greatly admire and thought showed great courage under difficult circumstances. Um, but I knew I was on the right track because with that quote, Doug, because on the back of the book, uh, bookreview.com got an early galley uh, proof of the book and to give a comment. And um, uh, M.K. Turner, who did the review, made a statement about that. He said, you know, you won't, something about you won't read this book without realizing how, you know, the role that, that, Law enforcement plays in protecting us when we're when we're at our least uh, our least helpful, or, you know, when we're at our worst, sort of sort of thing. Um, well, you're paraphrasing, so but yeah, you're paraphrasing what they said. You will never look at police business again without the admiration for those people who serve us when we are often at our most forlorn and helpless. Yes, and that and, again. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and when he um, when he made that quote. It was inter- what was interesting about that, when he made that statement, I had not put the Winston Churchill quote. We hadn't put that in. Roundfire Books and I hadn't put that in as part of the manuscript yet. So i have been thinking about it. I hadn't really approached the publisher with using that quote uh, at the beginning. But once uh, M.K. Turner made that statement, I thought, oh, you know, I may be on to something here. The fact that he mentioned that, you know, ties right into the quote and kind of gives that some more, uh, some more credence as well. So, yeah, I love that quote. The Winston Churchill's got so many great quotes that, are so apropos for what's going on uh, in our lives and in society today. So I just thought it was a great, a great quote to frame the book with. Do you mind if we share it with the listeners? Oh, uh, no, go right ahead. All right, here's the quote from Winston Churchill that kind of sets the stage 
for fragile brilliance. We sleep safely at night because rough men stand ready to visit violence on those who would harm us. Just a very short phrase, but it says a lot, and it, and it says the truth. And we're fortunate in this country to have those types of men and women who stand ready to visit those who would bring us harm. Folks, we're here this morning. We're listening to Elliot Parker. He's brought us Fragile Brilliance, his novel about police work and how that stuff goes down and a terrible, terribly new uh, deadly drug that's out there. And, folks, we will be back with more from Elliot Parker after these few messages. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren. On Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. This is Dr. George. Join me Wednesday mornings for Medicine on Call and participate in a lively conversation. Learn what's happening behind the headlines in medicine. Understand Obamacare and learn how to protect yourself and navigate the system. This is Michael Gano with Insight to Israel. Every day the Israeli Defense Force finds itself on the front line of the war with the militant arm of Islam. Surrounded by enemies from within and without, they fight for the only Jewish state. Military service is mandatory, ladies serving two years and men serving three right out of high school. While young people in other democracies are busy traveling or attending university, Israeli men and women gear up for basic training. In a world of heads of state, politicians, ambassadors, diplomats, and a leftist media, many times our voice at the grassroots level is drowned out. So we started an ongoing project called Hershey's for Heroes. Patriot conservatives from all over the U.S. are sending Hershey's chocolate bars with a note of thanks for defending Israel. Won't you join us by sending a sweet message to the IDF? For information, please see my Facebook page at Michael Gano. Thank you, God bless Patriot conservatives, and God bless Israel in her struggle for sovereignty and security. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. And welcome back. This is the prologue here on America's Web Radio. My name is Doug Dahlgren. We're here this morning with Elliot Parker. We've been talking about Fragile Brilliance. It's his police drama novel about a very terrible drug, and we've been beating that horse to death, as we said earlier. We want to get in a little bit to the background of our author here. Now, Elliot, you were born in Charleston, West Virginia, raised and educated in the Huntington area uh, in western West Virginia and eastern Kentucky and Ohio. Where is home for you today? Home for me today uh, is in uh, Chesapeake, Ohio, which is just right across the river from uh, Huntington, West Virginia. The easiest way I could describe its location, I'm about uh, five miles from Huntington, West Virginia, which is the last major city on the western part of the state before you cross into Kentucky. 
I'm about 15 miles east of Ashland, Kentucky, and about 45 miles east of Portsmouth, Ohio. So those are some of the major uh, major cities. And if you branch a little farther than that out, I'm about two and a half hours south of Columbus, Ohio, and about two hours uh, east of Lexington, Kentucky. So I'm, I'm right on the right on the border of three states is is, is where I reside now. As you said, you live in Ohio, but you teach at Mount West Community College in Huntington, West Virginia, so you're not really far from home uh, while you're doing that, are you? No, not at all. In fact, I'm probably seven minutes from work. All I have to do is uh, get on the main road out in front of my house and uh, cross a bridge and get on the interstate, and I'm at school in probably about uh, seven or eight minutes. So, uh, yeah, I'm I'm real close, real real close to all three of those states. For those of us in large metropolitan areas, that you, you just you just angered a bunch of us there. We're, we're jealous. Um, tell us, you you grew up in that same area pretty much your entire life in, in in this particular region of the country. What was life like for the young Elliot Parker? The 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 life for Elliot Parker was was great. I uh, my parents and my mother was a nurse. Uh, my father was a mortician. Um, my mother uh, worked a lot of different shifts. Uh, she worked mostly, I don't know what you call the shift now, I think the third watch shift, you know, would work the 3 p.m. to 1 a.m.-ish kind of shift. Uh, um, and she was a nurse for a number of years. Uh, my father was a mortician. So um, it, it was interesting. We didn't. Re- our daytimes and nighttimes were very much blurred growing up because <laughs> they worked shifts, and, and, and my father sometimes, you know, would have to get up in the middle of the night and go to hospitals and go to homes and make removals, and my mom would be working late. So our days and nights got uh, got, got mixed up from time to time, but uh, but it was great. I, I, I was very fortunate to have uh, two wonderful, loving, supportive parents uh, who encouraged me to follow my dreams and to do what I want to do. And, and, Doug, one of the best things they did for me uh, my mother was a big reader, and and still is today. Uh, and she would read a lot when she would come home from the hospital to kind of uh, unwind. You know, she'd been, you know, she'd come home one one thirty in the morning, and so she would, you know, she would read to kind of settle herself down and calm down. Um, so I got my reading prowess from her. But you know, growing up, that was the one thing that my parents never put a spending limit on was books. Um, when the book fairs would come to school, or if we were at at, at, at the mall. Uh, you know, and, and there were a lot of different, you know, there were a lot more bookstores back then, small independent-owned bookstores, unfortunately, than there are now. But uh, if there was a bookstore somewhere and I wanted to go buy books, they would let me buy as many books as I wanted with, with no spending limit. <laughs> so uh, they instilled in me uh, a love of, of reading, a love of learning, a love of, of being curious and following your own passions. Um, I played sports in high school. Um, I wasn't very good, but uh, I had a lot of fun. <laughs> I enjoyed it. Um, I, I wasn't a terribly great student in school. Uh, I wasn't quite sure that, that college was going to be for me, um, but I eventually went, went to Marshall University, uh, majored in journalism, as you mentioned earlier. Uh, I worked for uh, three years, uh, excuse me, four years, for uh, Bristol Broadcasting uh, in Charleston, West Virginia, and I did some some sports commentary and voiceover work and those kinds of things for them um, before I went into uh, before I went back to uh, Marshall and got my master's degree and then on to uh, Eastern Kentucky University to get my MFA in creative writing uh, and then went into teaching uh, not long after that. So uh, so I, I just sort of followed uh, you know followed a steady track and tried to find things that I liked and things that I enjoyed and tried to parlay some kind of a career or profession out of it. 
And uh, but I, but I'm just so thankful that my parents, you know, encouraged me and supported me, and and um, you know, I'm just very fortunate in that regard. You mentioned your mother and father, and, and it does sound like a very supportive, uh, indeed supportive uh, upbringing that you had there. You didn't mention any brothers and sisters. Are you an only child? Oh, I, I, yeah, I should. Yeah, no, I have a, I have a younger brother. His name is Evan, and I have a wonderful uh, sister-in-law uh, named Stephanie. Uh, they were just married this past June, uh, even though they'd been dating for as long as I can remember. Uh, and uh, uh, he spent. He used to live in uh, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, for a time. He was uh, a golf uh, instructor. Worked at a, um, a, a golf resort down there. And then, unfortunately, when the um, economy sort of hit the skids in 2008, uh, and membership at the place he was working declined, uh, he sort of left there and uh, came back to Charleston and uh, is working and living there now. So. Uh, so I get to see him a lot more often now than I than I used to, which is good. Anybody else in the family that's a writer? No, I am the only writer. I am the only okay. writer. Uh, got a lot of people in my family that on on both sides that like to read and 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 like to go to the movies and like the arts, but I'm the only writer. Okay, you went through. Uh, you kind of glossed over some very uh, interesting and exciting facets to your growing up that, if you don't mind, I want to step back and, and kind of go back over them a little bit in a little bit more detail. Um, you played sports in high school. Now, you, you told me you played football and uh, also baseball. Is that correct? That, that's correct, yes. Okay. And uh, like so many of us, uh, that really doesn't carry over into the college level. That's an entirely different game than high school, as we all find out. Uh, but your experience in high school did help you get into the sports writing and then eventually into the sports commentary. Uh, tell us a little bit more about that. Oh, sure. I'd be happy to. Um, I had, uh, you know, for the longest time uh, when I graduated high school and started at Marshall, I wanted to be the next Jim Nance or the next uh, sports center anchor or, you know, envision myself, you know, at the big, you know, doing the big time. That's kind of one time where I wanted to be. Um, but, you know, Having a little bit of that knowledge from high school was helpful in terms of, of, of sports and, and being around that environment, knowing the, the lingo and the language and those kinds of things. Uh, when Bristol Broadcasting hired me in 2000, uh, I started there part-time and eventually worked into more uh, opportunities there. Uh, my responsibilities there were helping co-host a sports show, a live sports show, that was on from 5 until 6 every evening. And also... Um, I served as the color analyst and play-by-play voice for two uh, colleges and universities in the Charleston area. One, uh, the University of Charleston, I did uh, color commentary for um, uh, their football and uh, men's basketball. And then at West Virginia State University, which is across town from University of Charleston, I did um, play-by-play and color commentary for their football and uh, men's basketball teams. Um, at, at that time... Uh, University of Charleston was Division uh, was Division Two or Three, and West Virginia State was NAIA, and I think they've changed affiliations and changed conferences. I don't follow it that that closely anymore, but you know it, it was great, Doug, getting to, to to talk to the players, to go to practice, to listen to how they would uh, interact, what they would say to each other, uh, just just kind of that atmosphere was really helpful uh, in in making the broadcast come alive and. and and being able to interject some little personal tidbits into the broadcasts 
uh, as things would go on, you know, what someone's major was or what their favorite food was or you know, where they're from and all those kinds of things that you, you learn about players and coaches just by talking with them sort of off the cuff. Uh, so that was really uh, helpful. It really enriched my broadcast, but it also served as great fodder for my first book, which is Breakdown of Clear River, because so much of that set is set on a college campus involving college students and, and athletes and a lot of the schools and a lot of the colleges that I, I visited as a broadcaster during my time there at, at Bristol Broadcasting are featured in the book. So it was really easy to draw upon those places I'd been to and all those uh, conversations I'd had with players and coaches to work that into that book. Tremendous experience and, of course, knowledge base there for, for what you're doing today. But for the rest of us out here, these uh, like myself, the armchair quarterbacks, that had to be fun. I mean, just plain fun getting to meet the players and then be on the radio and, and doing the color commentary, as you mentioned. Um, how long did you do that? For four years. Um, in 2004 is when, um, unfortunately, we, we started to see a little bit of a change in the media industry. Um, a lot of newspapers were sold at that time, a lot of newspapers that had been uh, you know, family-owned uh, were, were selling to larger conglomerates. That's still going on. I mean, the, the Washington Post here in the last couple of years just sold the Graham family and owned that newspaper for, you know, the better part of, you know, seven or eight decades, and they sold it to Jeff Bezos, who runs Amazon. So these, these kinds of sales are still going on. But at that time, it was really prevalent, and a lot of newspapers were selling. A lot of radio stations were selling. Uh, Clear Channel Radio, which is now iHeartMedia, was running around and buying up stations, and, and, and suddenly what was happening was, they were centralizing a lot of their operations, and people that I had worked with and, and gotten to know real well were leaving or their jobs were being eliminated. And I, I just kind of had that feeling that, you know, I, I better I better maybe look for something else or look for something more stable. And at, at the time, I thought, you know, probably I need to go back and get, you know, get some more education, that that, that would probably help me. Uh, so that's when I re-enrolled at Marshall, and, and I decided this time, uh, to get a master's degree in something that I really liked, and I always liked English as a, as a student in high school. I loved English as a college student, uh, as an undergrad, so, so I, I pursued that. But, you know, looking back, it, w- it was a great decision. And, and I took a big risk because I was, I was leaving a salary job. I was leaving uh, benefits. I was leaving retirement, you know, all those things that you get with full-time employment behind to take a chance to do something else. But looking back on it, I was fortunate. It, it, it was the right decision to make because, you know, from about 2004 to about 2009 or 10, uh, it, those kinds of sales to conglomerate companies uh, just continued. Now, it, it slowed down here a little bit uh, in the last four or five years, but at that time it was really, you know, it was really, uh, really rampant. So looking back on it, I feel like I made a, I made a good decision. Well, I think the readers would agree. Uh, tell us again right quick before we go to this next break, how can folks find out more about you and your books? What websites do you offer? Sure. Uh, they can check out my books uh, at Amazon.com. I have an author's page there that has more information about me. You can also uh, booksmillion.com, uh, barnesandnoble.com. Uh, also, I have a website, elliotparker.com, E-L-I-O-T-P-A-R-K-E-R.com, which has more information about me and my books. Um, the website is kind of undergoing some renovations, so if you, if you see some gaps on the page and things like that, that, that's intentional. But all the main content about me and my books is still there, so folks can find me and they can also contact me, find my social media tabs and everything through there as well. Excellent. Folks, you are listening to the prologue here on America's Web Radio. We're going to be back with Elliot Parker after these few messages. 
When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren, on Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. Have you heard of quantitative fluid analysis? Commonly called QFA, this test assesses your body at a cellular level and gives insight into your illness. Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center offers the QFA, an FDA-approved test that can often provide early diagnosis of conditions before they can be detected with other tests. Dr. Elena George believes in an integrative approach to medicine. She believes in treating the problem and not the symptom. Following a review of your results, Dr. George will suggest treatment approaches such as nutritional counseling and or the use of pharmaceutical-grade enzymes and nutritional supplements. Surgery and prescription medication will be recommended only when necessary. Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center is located in Atlanta at 1776 Peachtree Road Northwest in Suite 260 North Tower, two blocks south of Piedmont Hospital. They are open Monday through Friday, 8.30 a.m. until 4 p.m. Additional details are available at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. Call their office at 404-591-9100 to make an appointment and mention that you heard this ad on Radio Sandy Springs and get 10% off of QFA testing. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctor's conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. And welcome back. My name is Doug Dahlgren. You're listening to the Prologue on America's Web Radio. Our guest today is Elliot Parker. We've been talking about his work, primarily the novel... Fragile Brilliance. Now, Elliot was telling us about his experience in college. Uh, he had the, the, the pleasure, I would say, of being a sports writer and commentator for a couple of universities, calling football games and things like that, getting to know the players, and then actually being involved with the play-by-play of the games. Uh, a lot of us just envy that kind of stuff. But obviously along the way, you made the right decision, and writing became more important to you than on-air commentary. When when did you first realize that you wanted to pursue writing as a serious profession? I probably started writing, Doug, about seriously about 2008, um, where I originally got interested in writing. Uh, you know, started thinking about it off and on, you know, thinking about it or giving some serious thought to it. it was back in college when I was at Marshall. I had a friend who was a... Um, uh, an English major as an undergraduate, and he joined a creative writing club. Uh, at that time, they were trying to get permanent status at Marshall as a club, and they needed membership. So he persuaded me to uh, come to the meetings and join the club, and, and I did. Uh, my second year uh, in that club, um, the goal by the end of the year was we had to take something we had written, a short story, a poem, uh, a script, or whatever we, people were working on, and submit it for publication. It uh, didn't necessarily mean it had to be published or could be published, but that was our goal. Everybody had to send something off 
by the end of that uh, semester or that end of that year. Um, so we, so I did. I'd written a story called Hands, which is sort of a, a paranormal kind of metaphysical type story, uh, and it was accepted by a literary journal in uh, Mary Washington College in Virginia. So that was the first time that I really thought, oh, you know, somebody might actually want to read and publish something that I had written. Um, and then I started working and doing other things, and um, I, I wrote a book called The Prospect, which was uh, written in 2008. Uh, I'd self-published that book. My, my other three novels are, are traditional published traditionally published by uh, by uh, small and independent presses. But, um, you know, I, and at that time, Doug, I didn't know anything about publishing. I didn't know how books were put together, who did what, what, you know, I didn't know any of that kind of stuff. Um, and uh, unfortunately, that publisher, that, that self-publishing company is no longer in business, and so the book's gone out of print with the exception of a few uh, copies here and there on the Internet and, and floating around. Um, but that was the first time that I had written something you know, of 80,000 words or more and put it together and had to run all the plot threads and the characters through an entire, uh, you know, multi-page, you know, type of uh, writing. Uh, so really from that point on and, and from my experience there with that literary journal at Mary Washington College, I knew this is something I really wanted to pursue. And that's when I then enrolled in the um, MFA program at Eastern Kentucky University because I thought, you know, if I'm going to do this, I need to learn more about you know, what I do well as a writer, what I need to improve on, how does the publishing industry work, and all of those kinds of things. So um, so I really started in college and just kind of carried, carried on from there. And we're, and we're glad it did. Now, you mentioned the prospect, which is, you say, uh, hard to find these days, but you still have three novels that are traditionally published, Making Arrangements, Breakdown at Clear River, and the new one, Fragile Brilliance. Let me ask you right quick, where did the idea for Fragile Brilliance come from? Uh, it came really fr- from a couple of places. I- I'd mentioned earlier when we were talking that, that I had a number of friends that were that were in law enforcement. Um, I had the opportunity. One of those one of those um, uh, sources that I'd used for Fragile Brilliance came and did a presentation uh, at Mount West Community Technical College, where I teach uh, to our students and faculty and staff about drug use and staying away from drugs and that kind of thing. And uh, uh, he had some information at that time, very little information, but he'd mentioned this 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 drug called Croc. And uh, I was wanting to write another murder mystery, and I was wanting to a thriller story, and I was wanting to set it in Charleston, uh, which is where I grew up. And I thought, what would be something that would really make this book stand out? Because as you and I have talked about, you know, off broadcast, mystery and thriller genre is such a heavily written genre in terms of so many writers are writing in that genre and producing stories in that genre. And it's hard to you know, sort of make yours, your book, your manuscript stand out from the crowd. So I thought, boy, this here's a drug that is is not much is known about it. It's very deadly, and what would happen if that got turned loose in in, in this region or in, in this community or in the community in which I grew up grew up? So that's where I got the idea, and then uh, I took some of that, and then got some stories from my uncle and other friends of mine and sources that work in law enforcement. Took bits and pieces of stories they had told me about crimes they had investigated, and kind of melded it all together, and that's where the uh, the idea for Fragile Brilliance uh, came to be. What's in the pipeline for Elliot Parker? Are Ronan and his friends going to be a series? Yes, yes, this, this is going to be a series. Okay, um, uh, one element I, I wanted to mention, uh, too, about the book is uh, Ronan and Ty have a very interesting relationship, um, and, and this came from uh, a source I had talked to. Uh, one of the, the, the dynamics that makes Ronan's investigation uh, into you know what's going on with the croc in Charleston is the fact that that he's gay, and uh, his 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 partner Ty is an emergency room nurse, uh, 
at uh, the hospital that all the patients and all the crime victims end up going to when they're wounded and, and those kinds of things. Um, so that adds sort of a different, another layer because it, it, as Ronan continues to get deeper and deeper into the investigation, he's got to protect this relationship. So I've already got the next book uh, in the pipeline. It's going to be called A Knife's Edge, which is sort of a double entendre term that uh, law enforcement uses uh, about cases that could go either way. Uh, for example, you know, uh, you come up to a crime scene, maybe it's a suicide, maybe it's a homicide. It, that case is on the knife's edge. So that's going to factor into the story, but also the knife's edge is going to work into the story in terms of, of the central murder uh, that happens there. So there's going to be a high body count, so to speak, in the next book, uh, just like there was in Fragile Brilliance. But the book's going to be also about relationships, and Ronan's got a lot of relationships to repair. He's got to repair relationships with his captain, his police partner. He's got to... Um, repair relationships with Ty. He's got to repair relationships with his family because he crossed the line and he, he pushed a lot of envelopes, so to speak, in, in Fragile Brilliance. And so he's got to get over that as well as what happened in the first book with the desomorphine. You know, A Knife's Edge takes place six months after when Fragile Brilliance ends. And so the lingering effects of what that drug and what that crime syndicate did to the community still has a hangover effect in the next book. So there's going to be a lot the different stuff going on in Knife's Edge, but all the characters that are featured in Fragile Brilliance are going to carry over into the next book. All right. Now, you teach writing and literature, as we've mentioned before. Being an author with three books in print currently uh, and your master's degree in English, do you find yourself, your presence, and your knowledge to be intimidating to your students? I don't really think so. I, I think, if anything, you know, it gives me a level of credibility. Um, I think that, and, and I, I don't want to get too too general on this statement because I think there's always variance on both sides, but but I think uh, at least the students I work with uh, and the population that, that we teach kind of want to know, you know, what have you done in, in relationship to this? You know, are you, know, are, are you using this day-to-day, in other words? Uh, you know, and what experience do you have? So if I'm up talking about the importance of organization and writing, you know, it helps if I go in and say, you know, I'm a published writer, and I've published three books. And, and, and I don't do that to kind of stick my thumbs in my lapel, but I want the students to see that, you know, the things we're talking about are not just something I took out of a textbook and I'm just sort of standing up here as the talking head reciting to you, that these things we're talking about I use all the time. If we're talking about the importance of having good sentences and, and clear sentences, you know, I'm using that all the time. I'm using that, uh, you know, outside of the classroom. So, so I think it, it's helped me in that regard uh, because students see that the things we're talking about in the classroom, you know, we're going to help them, you know, in their academic career. It's going to help them in the workplace, but also that, hey, I'm actually doing that too. I'm using those same sets of skills that we're talking about. And in order for me to do this, I have to use some of the things we're talking about. So I think it helps me in that regard. All writers have their own opinions and, of course, uh, different disciplines and ways they go about their craft. What, as a teacher, do you try to tell your students is the most important thing about writing? That you need to, that, that writing is about development of ideas and supporting evidence for what you say, and less about do I have every single comma in the right place. And, you know, there's two kind of theories to, to teaching writing. There is the, the, the structurist or structuralist kind of writing, which is, you can't have good writing unless every comma is in the right place, unless you've got every semicolon correct. And then there's the, the sort of holistic approach, which is kind of my philosophy, which is 
can you develop ideas? Can you support those ideas? And can, do you have organized flow? Can the reader follow your writing from, from part one to the end? And those are the things that I stress. Because I tell my students, you know, no, but I don't even have, you know, there's, there's you know, three dozen comma rules. I don't have all the comma rules memorized. Uh, and very few people do. Uh, but you can look that up in a handbook. But if, it, you know, if you're turning something in to someone, you know, a professor, or you're turning something into your boss, or you're writing something that's going to go out to a constituency or a customer base or something of that sort, if, if you don't have organization and you don't have good, good uh, development of ideas and your ideas aren't supported, no one's going to take that piece of writing seriously. So that, that's the approach that I want them to understand is that, you know, it, yes, you want to have all your commas correct and all your semicolons and all that, uh, but if you don't have those memorized, it's no big deal. That's what you have handbooks for. It's what you have Google for. You can put those things up. But but what you've got to really spend a lot of your time focusing on is developing those ideas and supporting that, either with evidence from a personal experience or if you're doing a research paper with source material, because those are the kind of things that people and employers and, and those kinds of groups are going to judge your, your competency and your writing ability on. Excellent advice. I guess what I'm hearing in there is get the story down. The rest of it can be fixed. Exactly, that, exactly. Well, and, and I tell my yeah. students all the time, and I know you, you know this too uh, as well, Doug, as a writer, that the first draft is always going to be a pretty poor draft. And uh, <laughs> if you go in with the approach that it's got to be perfect, that very first draft, you're never going to get anywhere. So I try to teach them exactly as you're saying, that you know we can go back and put the commas and the semicolons in later. Right now, Let's get the ideas down on paper. Let's see where the, where the development goes. Let's see what your, your thesis or your theme is going to be. And then we can work on all that other secondary stuff later. Very good. Elliot Parker, thank you so much for being with us this morning. I hope that you've had a good time and that our interested listeners are going to look into your work and even buy Fragile Brilliance. Well, Doug, I thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure, and thanks for all the good work uh, you do for authors. Thank you so much. Folks, that's about it for this week. Again, I am Doug Dahlgren. I appreciate you listening to the prologue. For my guest this hour, Elliot Parker, and myself, I say have a great rest of your week. Be good to yourselves and each other. Read a book. If not Elliot's, maybe you'll look at one of mine. And I'll see you all again in just 167 hours. Take care. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.